Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For this hour, the keynote address by author and activist Susan Abuhawa, speaking at the Israel and American Policy Conference held March 22, 2019, at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. The way that Israel exists in the world is ultimately antithetical to life and to liberty, not just for Palestinians but for all people who struggle against tyranny, oppression, white supremacy, and ecological destruction. Susan Abuhawa's full keynote address coming up. Susan Abuhawa is a highly regarded Palestinian author who has written internationally acclaimed bestsellers. Her debut novel, Mornings in Janine, was translated into 28 languages. Her second novel, The Blue Between Sky and Water, has likewise been translated into 26 languages. Abuhawa's first poetry collection, My Voice Sought the Wind, was published by Just World Books. Her third novel will be published soon in 2019. She's the daughter of refugees from the 1967 Six-Day War when her family's land was seized and Israel captured what remained of Palestine, including Jerusalem. She was born in Kuwait, raised between there and Jerusalem, then in the Carolinas, where she completed high school, university, and graduate school, majoring in neuroscience. She enjoyed a successful career in biomedical science before becoming a full-time writer. I first heard her poetry uh, years ago at an ADC convention, and as a child who also grew up here and there, always searching for my own homeland, I listened to her poetry and wept. She currently lives in Pennsylvania with her daughter, their cats, and dogs. In 2001, Susan founded Playgrounds for Palestine, a children's organization dedicated to upholding the right to play for Palestinian children. To help raise funds to build more playgrounds, she has launched Ida, a private label olive oil from Palestine. You'll find her bottles and books in the Ideas Fair. Abu Hawa is often invited to international poetry or literary festivals. Audiences in every country in the world can listen to her voice except in her own homeland. In November 2018, Israeli authorities barred her entry into Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion Airport and prevented her from participating in a panel discussions at a literature festival in Ramallah in Jerusalem. She was detained for 32 hours, many of them spent in an Israeli jail cell, as she appealed her decision. An Israeli court upheld her deportation. Please welcome a powerful voice for Palestine. Thank you so much for that um, generous introduction. 
It's really great to be back at the Washington Report. This is an institution that was one of the main sources, or first sources, we had for independent media, and it's an honor to be the keynote. I want, in this talk, to try and examine the nature of Israel in the world. And to do that, I'm going to try and present a survey of Israel from multiple angles that are going to seem disparate and unrelated. And they include democracy, nature, global weapons, friendship, and archaeology. Most of us in this room understand the colonial and apartheid underpinnings of Israel, which manifest in the unrelenting daily horrors and indignities for Palestinians. On the other hand, some folks see Israel as a benevolent place trying to exist with Palestinians. But I would like to look beyond this kind of contained binary framework relative only to Palestinians, because Israel is so much more. Every country in the world, of course, has good and bad elements. But I do think it's possible to pinpoint a kind of general imprint for societies, um, the way they exist in the world, and also, more importantly, how they impact the rest of the world. And to do this, I found that national spending data are useful. When we look at Israeli spending, we find that it is second only to Saudi Arabia, that other bastion of human rights, in arms spending per capita in the world, exceeding the United States military spending per capita, as well as exceeding US military spending as a percent of GDP. I'm going to talk about what all of this means in real life, but first, I want to touch on the prevailing perception of Israel, um, which has been cultivated through sustained, multi-tiered, multi-pronged public relations campaigns that present Israel as an unfairly maligned modern democracy, one that is advanced, socially enlightened, and endlessly innovative from such absurd claims as having invented falafel <laughs> to the equally absurd claim of being less than one year away from curing cancer. It's actually a real thing. What is promulgated through popular international media is typically not merely an exaggeration of reality or even just spin, but it's often precisely the opposite of reality. A case in point is this article in Scientific American a respected magazine that translates scientific information for laypersons. The article touted Israel's desalination plants as unprecedented ingenuity in the region, using language that comports with the old proposition that Israel was a miracle that made the desert bloom. The reality could not be further from that. Two implicit lies in the title and subtitle alone. First, Arab nations in the Gulf have been using desalination technology for the past 50 years. But more important is the little known fact that Ramallah's annual rainfall actually exceeds London's annual rainfall. And Jerusalem's rainfall is nearly on par with London's. Plus it's way sunnier. 
The point is that Palestine isn't and never was dry, desert, or barren. This is the cover of a detailed audit book of all the ways that Israel has profoundly and detrimentally altered the natural biomes, landscape, hydraulic potential, and ecological balance of Palestine. It is a monumentally depressing read, but I don't have time to go into the terrible details, but keeping with the example at hand, I'm briefly going to touch on water. The article described Israel as a, quote, galvanized civilization that created water from nothingness. Where a few miles away, water disappeared and civilizations crumbled. In fact, in its first years of establishment, Israel began water diversion projects and over-pumping from rivers and tributaries to serve Zionist settlements with unsustainable European standards, which were utterly in conflict with the local terrain and which set the stage for a multitude of environmental disasters all across Palestine. One example among many of Israel's destruction of Palestine's natural water systems is the al Aja River, which Israel renamed as the Yarkon. It was a vigorous coastal river described in an 1891 travel guide as, quote, a roaring river that zigzags until falling into the sea. Its power turns mills and small fish can be caught in it. In a mere decade of Israeli management of Palestine's water, this life-giving river was reduced to a trickle of sewage. Its water siphoned and replaced with a toxic sludge of industrial and domestic pollutants, which in 1997 ate through the lungs and vital organs of athletes competing in the Maccabea Games when a bridge fell and they fell into the river. One of Israel's first water projects when it conquered the rest of Palestine was to divert as much water as possible from the Jordan River once it gained access. This spurred Syria and Jordan to follow suit to preserve their own share of regional waters. And decades later, water levels are so low that the Jordan River can no longer replenish the Dead Sea. The declining water levels coupled with Israel's evaporation ponds to extract minerals and other industrial activities have created an environmental disaster never before seen in Palestine. It has become cliche to say that the Dead Sea is dying. In the 1950s, Israel drained Palestine's Hula wetlands, a regional biodiversity treasure, in order to establish Jewish settlements. Hundreds of such colonial projects have greatly denigrated the rich biological and geographical diversity that once thrived in that terrain where three continents meet. Some of the fish and birds that were destroyed by this project were found nowhere else in the world and have since gone extinct. This is to say nothing of the way that the land has been scarred and disfigured, hilltops decapitated for rapacious settlements, millions of imported fast-growing trees planted to conceal destroyed Palestinian villages, only for these non-native trees to be rejected by the land in massive forest fires, leaving a scorched earth on hundreds of thousands of acres. And it is to say nothing 
of the systematic ways in which Israel uproots olive trees and other fruit-bearing trees that sustain Palestinian families. There are countless such examples and systematic ways in which Israel has devastated nature, sometimes in ways that cannot be undone. And although Israel's role as a destroyer of Palestinian society overshadows their environmental record, Israel should nonetheless be counted among the world's polluters, decimators of trees, and spoilers of nature. I want to turn now to Israeli innovations and exports. Because Israel leads the world in several niche death surveillance and suppression technologies and tactics. It is well known and admitted by Israeli weapons manufacturers that they test their weapons on Palestinians. And Gaza is their biggest laboratory. According to Daryl Lee of the University of Chicago, Gaza is a quote, space where Israel tests and refines various techniques of management, continuously experimenting in search of an optimal balance between maximum control over territory and minimum responsibility for its non-Jewish population. I told you earlier that Israel is right there with Saudi Arabia, leading the world in military spending per capita. Other countries like the United States, Russia, and China aren't far behind. But where an extraordinary difference emerges is with military exports. Studies in international databases will show that Israel is anywhere from the fourth to the eighth largest exporter of arms. And this depends on the year and the currency examined. I should point out, however, that these data are likely gross underestimations because Israel doesn't actually report its arms deals, many of which occur through covert deals via independent arms hustlers, often retired Israeli military generals. Given that Israel is listed among exporters of arms with far bigger populations and far bigger economies, I looked for data to show exports per capita, and I came up mostly empty-handed to my surprise. I'm sure that data must be out there somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So I put on my old scientist and statistician hat and did the calculations myself. I used two databases. The first was of the top arms exporters in US dollars for years 2010 to 2018 from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or SIPRI, which compiles data on arms transfers and conflicts around the world. Then, using Excel functions, I matched those data up with a world population database for corresponding years from the World Bank. Then, using simple arithmetic functions, I calculated and graphed arms sales, normalized to the size of the population to determine arms export per capita for all the countries in the SIPRI database. And what I found is that Israel leads the entire world in arms exports, often by a huge margin every single year between 2010 and 2018. With the exception of 2011, in which Sweden, strangely, was neck and neck with them. Again, these data do not include the vast covert arms transfers, military training, and surveillance technology. 
One of Israel's biggest military hardware niches is drones. Over 60% of global drones exports come from Israel. And the United States is just in second place with just less than 24%. The attractiveness of Israeli arms is that they boast of being combat-tested. A case in point is Israel's Hermes 900, which was still in the testing phase when it was used against civilians in Gaza in 2014. A mere three weeks after that onslaught in Gaza that murdered 2,200 people and maimed tens of thousands more, Israel held a drone trade show called Israel Unmanned Systems 2014, in which that Hermes 900 was all the rage for its so-called performance in Gaza. In that assault in 2014, Israel used drones to kill at least 840 people. In the current assault on Gaza protesters, Israel is using a series of new drones called the Cyclone Riot Control Drone System. It's being used to spray aerosol and gas substances from the sky. They appear to be used for the first time against the Great March of Return. The company that makes the cyclone claims on their website uh, to be a leading supplier for police in the United States, and they boast that their product claims are based on practical field experience. Um, this is what it looks like. So what happens after these death and suppression technologies are developed and tested on the bodies, psyches, and spirits of Palestinians? Throughout its short history, Israel has been one of the most dependable suppliers of weapons to pariah regimes, especially in situations where weapons embargoes were put in place due to severe human rights abuses. The ones I'm going to show you were revealed due to leaks, revolutions, or specific investigations, especially those by two Israeli human rights activists, Itay Mack and Yair Aron. In South Sudan's civil war, Israel continued to supply the South Sudanese regime with weapons despite an ongoing civil war that had left half a million people dead and four million displaced in the past five years. Israel's arms sales to South Sudan continued despite a UN report that documented extensive and grave human rights violations, including the drafting of child soldiers, burning of villages, systematic rape, indiscriminate killing, pillaging, and destruction of infrastructure. And they continued to supply weapons to them despite a US arms embargo, followed by a UN arms embargo against South Sudan. In fact, just a few months ago, the former head of the Israeli armies was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department as an agent who sold over $150 million worth of weapons under the cover of an agricultural company that was supposed to be building affordable housing in South Sudan. 
and the Bosnian massacres. Israel sold weapons to Serbian forces during the Bosnian War in the early 90s, long after the UN embargo was declared in 91. In 92, when Slobodan Milosevic was on trial, the president of Serbia at the time, um, uh, he was described at the time as the new Hitler of Europe. Um, I think most of us in this room are old enough to remember him. At that time, Israel opened uh, an embassy in Serbia. And simultaneously, Serbian forces were creating concentration camps and committing massacres against Bosnian Muslims that led to the murder of an estimated 250,000 people. Ite Mak, uh, whom I mentioned earlier, gathered evidence that Israelis in the highest offices were involved in both arming and training Serbian forces. Mack and Oran then petitioned the Israeli Supreme Court with concrete evidence of this, including the diary of Ratham Lavik, who's on trial at the um, ICC for war crimes. They had his diary in which he cataloged all the training and uh, weapons that were transferred to them. Israel's high court rejected the petition, arguing that declassifying documents exposing Israel's role in the Bosnian genocide would harm Israeli interests. Adding insult to injury, Israel is now engaged in revising the history of this genocide. So, Israel supplied weapons to Serbia while it was known that they were committing genocide and while there was a UN embargo, arms embargo in place, and Israel's high court covered it all up. In Myanmar, we know that Israel continued to transfer weapons to the Burmese army long after they were accused of committing war crimes, including murder, rape, torture, and the burning of villages that left thousands dead and at least 700,000 displaced from the Rohingya minority. Israel was selling arms to Myanmar well after the European Union and the United States imposed an arms embargo on the country. Mack and Oran petitioned the Israeli High Court to stop these weapon sales, but the, uh, the ruling was kept classified. But we know that Israel continued to supply armor, land and water vehicles and artillery to the Burmese military. So, once again, Israel supplied arms to Myanmar while it was known that they were committing ethnic cleansing and while there was a UN embargo in place, and Israel's high court helped to cover it up and enable it. In Rwanda, going back again to the 1990s, to another horrific genocide, an estimated one million men, women, and children were massacred in Rwanda in the space of 100 days. It is said to be the fastest pace of genocide in human history. Israel provided the rifles, ammunition, and grenades that made it all possible. Itay Mack, again, in petitioning the Israeli High Court to declassify the arms transfers, quoted the Israeli arms dealer who in Rwanda said, quote, I'm actually a doctor, unquote expressing pride for supplying those weapons because, he said, he helped the victims die quickly. Israel's high court ruled that the details of those arms deals will remain a secret, again claiming that it would harm Israeli interests to reveal the extent of those arms transfers. 
So, again, Israel supplied Rwanda with weapons while it was known that a genocide was taking place and while a UN arms embargo was in place and Israel's high court helped to cover it up. Adding insult to injury, again, Israel later backed a move at the UN by um, Rwanda to rewrite history of this particular genocide as a larger quid pro quo with Paul Kagame, president of uh, Rwanda, to take in asylum seekers deported from Israel. Now, going even further back to apartheid South Africa, this is the cover of an explosive book when it was published in 2010 by um, Sasha Polakasaransky, detailing the never-before-known extent of cooperation between Israel and the apartheid government of South Africa. Israel was South Africa's closest ally, its most important arms supplier, and eventually its only friend in a world that could no longer look the other way from the crimes of apartheid. The coordination between the two countries was unprecedented. Their respective intelligence chiefs held regular meetings sharing information and training and surveillance. They gave unfettered access to each other's military tactics, missions, and intelligence. Their relationship was actually deeper than mere trade and coordination. Israel had a spiritual and moral affinity for the apartheid government in South Africa, which was articulated in the 1980s by Israeli Chief of Staff Rafael Itan, who said, referring to blacks in South Africa, that they, quote, want to gain control over the white minority, just like the Arabs here want to gain control over us. And we too, like the white minority in South Africa, must act to prevent them from taking over us. In 1976, just two months after Israel rolled out the red carpet for the South African president, school children in Soweto took to the streets to demonstrate against an imposed racist curriculum. The white South African police mowed them down with weapons that had been supplied by Israel. What shocked the world further from this book was to finally learn that Israel had offered to provide the apartheid government with nuclear arms as far back as 1975. Israel tried to prevent the declassification of the post-apartheid government documents, but they were unsuccessful and it became clear that Israel did indeed lead to the nuclear armament of uh, the apartheid regime which luckily <clears throat> disarmed voluntarily uh, following the fall of apartheid. One more thing that's worth noting here. In 2007, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert warned that his country could one day, quote, face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights. And as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. There are so many more examples of such violent Israeli subterfuge in the world. And I'm going to quickly rattle through a few of these examples without going into detail for the sake of time. 
but just know that every one of these instances, um, and this is not a, a complete list, of Subrosa arms sales occurred to bolster repressive, brutal regimes at different times, and as well as training of mercenaries to facilitate corporate plunder. Israel continued supplying arms to the former repressive white colonial regime in Rhodesia, or modern-day Zimbabwe, after UN sanctions were imposed in 1967. Israel armed and supported Portugal against national liberation movements in the former colonies of Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau. Israel funded and trained the military repression of anti-colonial uprisings and or dictatorships in the Ivory Coast, Central African Republic, Benin, Togo, Cameroon, Senegal, Uganda, Nigeria, and Somalia. Israel armed all sides of the Angola civil war at different times over 40 years. They used this colonial tactic in other places to fuel and arm wars to divide and reconquer Africa. Israel armed and trained elite units in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, bolstering the brutal rule of Mobutu Seseko following the assassination of Pan-Africanist Patrice Lumumba. They sold arms to Sri Lanka to suppress the Tamils. Israel provided nearly all arms sold to the Somoza dictatorship in Nicaragua that terrorized its people for over 12 years. Following the democratic election of the Sandinistas, Israel funneled arms to the brutal Nicaraguan Contras and was embroiled in what became known as the Iran-Contra affair. They likewise sold arms to Guatemalan death squads, as well as death squads in El Salvador and Honduras, to Chile during Pinochet's horrific di dictatorship, to Rafael Trujillo during his dictatorship of the Dominican Republic, to the terrorist Argentinian junta in the 1970s. In many of these places, Israel also sold surveillance technology to monitor phones and track political activists. They did the same thing in the Philippines during the Ferdinand Marcos era and in Indonesia under the repressive Suharto. They're also now supplying weapons to the accused war criminal leader of Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. In Cameroon, Israeli generals provide training and arms to protect dictator Paul Bia, who has been crushing political dissidents, disappearing, assassinating, and torturing activists. They're doing the same thing in the oil-rich Equatorial Guinea, colluding with Obiang Nguema and Exxon Mobil to suppress political dissent and facilitate the siphoning of that nation's resources to enrich its rulers and U.S. and Israeli corporations while its people languish in abject poverty. You are listening to author and activist Susan Abuhawa speaking at the Israel Lobby and American Policy Conference held March 22nd at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, back to Susan Abuhawa. Israel also provides countries and corporations with wares and training for domestic policing and suppression of dissent. 
In places like Brazil, Israel plays a huge role in the domestic surveillance, prisons, militarized borders, and internal policing and suppression. In the United States, there is widespread training of US police departments. The export of Israel's brutal tactics to the United States has been so alarming that Jewish Voice for Peace launched a dedicated campaign called Deadly Exchange to fight against it and bring awareness. Over 200 police and security agencies across the United States have gone on training junkets to Israel. And I think these are just the ones that were, are funded by one um, Zionist, domestic Zionist agency, where they are both brainwashed about Israel and instructed in ruthless military tactics. The impact of this cooperation between US domestic police departments and the Israeli occupation military came to light after the Ferguson uprising, in which RoboCop police showed up in military gear to suppress unarmed, peaceful protesters. It turned out that the Ferguson Police Department had gone on one of these training junkets in Israel. Also of note is the incident uh, of police shooting in 2016 in Dallas, Texas in which Police Chief David Brown sent in a robot packed with explosives to kill the suspect. It was a kind of robot suicide bomber, if you will. It was apparently the first known time that police dispatched a robot to kill a suspect on U.S. soil rather than attempting apprehension or negotiating surrender. As it turned out, that police chief had been on a 10-day so-called anti-terrorism training in Israel. Lastly, on this point, and this is something that Ali Abu Nama touched on earlier, is the recent revelation that Israeli intelligence companies have been spying on U.S. citizens, not to mention the role that these Israeli um, intelligence companies have had in tampering with the U.S. presidential election in 2016, as the Mueller investigation has revealed. Now I want to move on to friendships and alliances. Despite claiming to be the guardians and protectors of Jews everywhere, Israel actually has courted some of the world's most notorious anti-Semites, as long as they support Israel's occupation and by their arms. John Vorster, the apartheid uh, South African prime minister that I mentioned earlier, was a Nazi sympathizer who was imprisoned by the British for his ties to the Grey Shirts fascist militia. In 1976, Yitzhak Rabin heaped praise on him and gave him the red carpet welcome when he visited Israel. Israel has cozied up and is supporting ultra-nationalist, ultra-right, anti-minority, racist, homophobe Bolsonaro in Brazil, who said, quote, refugees are the scum of the earth. He told a female colleague she was too ugly to rape. He threatened to destroy or imprison his political opponents. He spoke favorably of torture. He lamented that the Brazilian cavalry wasn't as efficient as Americans who exterminated the Indians. And he said that he'd rather see his son die in a car crash than hear he was gay. Israel has also developed ties and has been arming and training neo-Nazis in the Ukraine. Israel likewise opened its doors to anti-Semitic 
Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who praised his country's World War II era leadership that presided over the mass murder of Jews. And he employed terrible age-old anti-Semitic tropes to demonize George Soros. In December, Netanyahu even met with him to negotiate the opening of a revisionist Holocaust museum in Budapest, which basically exonerates Hungary's role in Europe's Holocaust. Netanyahu signed a joint declaration with the right-wing Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki, which likewise wipes clean Poland's record in Europe's Holocaust and rewrote history to state that the Poles were actually helping Jews escape Nazis. Of course, there's this card-carrying anti-Semite that Israel loves and embraces. Netanyahu went so far as to make excuses for Hitler, claiming in 2015 that Hitler wasn't the monster we all thought he was. Rather, that it was a Palestinian leader, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who convinced him to actually kill European Jews. Luckily, Netanyahu crossed a line with that one, and uh, European leaders and historians rose together to give them a foul card. The last bit I want to touch on um, briefly has to do with the way that Israel's rewriting of history is robbing the world of archaeological treasures and important history that belongs not only to Palestinians, but to all of humanity. Because Palestine is an extraordinarily special place. While it already has an indigenous population that formed there over millennia, Palestine holds a history that belongs to all people of monotheistic faiths. Since its inception, Israel has worked tirelessly to erase the footprints of the many civilizations, religions, and peoples who existed in that land before, during, and after Jewish presence in the land. The existence of so many churches and mosques are particular irritants to Israel and it has worked in earnest to destroy, desecrate, or control them from the beginning of their control over the land. Immediately after the Nakba, Israel began a campaign of destroying the Palestinian villages it had just depopulated, including tearing down mosques and churches, some of which were centuries old and of great religious and historic significance, like the Sheikh Eid Mosque in Jerusalem that was built by one of Salah din's sons. In places where new Jewish inhabitants took over Palestinian towns, non-Jewish places of worship have been turned into nightclubs, animal pens, restaurants, brothels, and the like. Other mosques were made inaccessible, declared closed military zones, leaving them derelict. When the Islamic movement once um, helped a group of internal refugees from the former village of Fund restore their mosque in 2000. It was bulldozed overnight in still unexplained circumstances. Increasingly, Jewish militias are vandalizing and burning churches and mosques without any consequence to perpetrators. In 2010, a U.S. State Department uh, report stated that, quote, non-Jewish holy sites in Israel do not enjoy legal protection because the government does not recognize them as officially holy sites. 
After Jewish settlers torched a mosque in 2012, former military chief of staff admitted in a radio interview that there was no interest in catching the culprits. He said, quote, if we wanted, we could catch them. And when we want to, we will, unquote. Part and parcel of Israel's erasure of history, <clears throat> um, they have also targeted non-Jewish cemeteries. The ancient Muslim cemetery of Ma'manillah which includes graveyards by prom prominent Muslim scholars, generals, and companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was destroyed to build a museum by the California-based Weisenthal Center. In, 20, in 2008, over 100 skeletons were unearthed and tossed aside um, during excavations for the construction work. Throughout Palestine, in places where Israel has developed Jewish cities, Muslim and Christian cemeteries were simply built, dug up and built over. For example, um, Tel Aviv University, which was built over the Palestinian village of Sheikh Muniz, desecrated a graveyard and built a dormitory over it. Lastly, um, I want to briefly touch on the ways that Israel has weaponized archaeology. On the pretense of digging for history, it has confiscated and demolished whole Palestinian neighborhoods. Silwan in East Jerusalem is the best known example of this, where Israel has confiscated at least six denims of land belonging to one family, the Siam family, and they've evicted over 6,000 Palestinians. The purpose of the dig was never about archaeology because we know that they're planning to build a so-called Jewish national park in the area a kind of Jewish Disneyland, as it's being referred to. We also know that the Israel Antiquities Authority has destroyed several ancient archaeological sites and antiquities as a result of this dig, um, <clears throat> including a cemetery dating back to the Abbasid Caliphate and relics dating back to the Canaanite era, um, era in the second millennium BC. It is not for love of archaeology or history. In fact, Israel dis routinely destroys ancient cities unearthed by archaeologists, so long as they have nothing to do with Jewish history. The first thing they did when they conquered um, Palestine, the rest of Palestine in 1967, was to demolish the entire Moroccan neighborhood that was over 800 years old, displacing hundreds of Palestinians. Israel has engaged in such massive destruction of antiquities consistently and systematically. Another example shown here is a recent find of a 1,200-year-old mixed village of well-off Muslims and Christians who live together. Archaeologists got a chance to take photos and record some of the relics, but the site is set to be bulldozed for development. Again, these are all just um, surface surveys uh, of, of hidden realities. The depredations of Israel are much more vast, deeper, and far-reaching. But my hope is that what I have presented here today will expand the view from Israel as an apartheid nation suppressing the indigenous Palestinian population to a deeper understanding of Israel as a global force of violence, plunder, paranoia, surveillance, greed, war, suppression, ecological destruction, erasure of history, the forceful transfer of wealth from the weak to the powerful, and the entrenchment of, a supremac of supremacist ideologies that set human hierarchies and castes. 
No matter how many gay pride marches they hold or how many Eurovisions they host, no matter how good their national orchestra makes you feel when they tour the world, or how Palestinian citizens are given a symbolic vote, no matter how much greenwashing, pinkwashing, or whitewashing Hasbara there is in mainstream media, the way that Israel exists in the world is ultimately antithetical to life and to liberty, not just for Palestinians, but for all people who struggle against tyranny, oppression, white supremacy, and ecological destruction. The situation is dire and desperate for our families in Palestine. The grim reality of our compatriots' daily lives and the dimming of our future in our homeland is portended by Israel's push now to ban the Adan over Jerusalem for the first time since the dawn of Islam. And Israel is moving forcefully against Al-Aqsa, perhaps the final frontier in Palestine. But I do not want to end on such a hopeless note because despite everything, there is so much to celebrate, so much to encourage our continued struggle and much to inspire hope. In fact, I believe that Israel's current escalation of their ongoing ethnic cleansing is in many ways a desperate though counterproductive response to the growing international repudiation of them including by young Jews whose moral compass is not guided by Zionism. The conversation is changing here and around the world. Palestine is the single issue splitting leftist movements and parties globally. The Democratic Party here in the US, the Women's March, the Labor Party in the UK. Increasingly, we are not alone points of intersection with liberation and with liberation movements around the world are being filled with reciprocal solidarity and more importantly our people on the front lines have not given up and they continue every day to fight and insist on life and in the bigger picture afforded by historical examples palestine actually follows time-tested trajectories of liberation difficult and bloody as these paths always are, I believe that ultimately restoration to our homeland, to liberty and dignity is our only collective destiny. Thank you. Um, what role has Israel played in the war in Syria? So, um, did you guys hear the question? Uh, it is, what role has Israel played in the war in Syria? Actually, there are, there's more than one UN report detailing Israeli arms transfers to the so-called rebels, uh, who are a hodgepodge of a multitude of folks, um, most of whom aren't even Syria, and they do include militias from Al-Qaeda. And uh, we also know that these anti-Assad fighters 
have been getting medical treatment in Israel and in addition to the arms. So they're def- they've definitely been bolstering and supporting the civil war from day one, I think. What is the relationship between ISIS and Israel in the destruction of antiquities? Yeah, sorry. Uh, the question is, what is the relationship between ISIS and Israel in the destruction of antiquities? Well, they both destroy antiquities. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think they're, they're colluding necessarily in the destruction of antiquities, but, you know, ISIS, uh, uh, they're both anti-culture, <laughs> you know. Uh, ISIS blew up important Buddhist ancient statues, uh, and Israel has been systematically erasing the presence of many civilizations, especially an Islamic uh, presence in the land. And is an Israeli company involved um, in building our wall and using Israeli materials? Um, I have read that, actually. Um, uh, I think a simple Google search will show that there are several Israeli companies. Um, and, and I'm not sure if, if, if... I mean, Donald Trump has... Uh, publicly praised Israel's wall, um, and they—I know that they did put in bids. So I don't know if they actually are involved in actually building it. I also read that they are um, possibly involved in the surveillance and providing some of the surveillance uh, equipment for the wall. Um, right, Albiz. Any idea what percentage of police in the USA shooting blacks were trained or? trained by Israel here or there? That's a good question, and it's actually one that I've been trying to get information on, especially in our city in Philadelphia. Um, uh, But I'm not the expert on that, and I think the the most reliable place at this point is to, is um, Jewish Voice for Peace uh, Deadly Exchange Program that I mentioned earlier. Uh, They have been sending uh, or filing FOIA applications um, in, in, in many cities. And it actually, it's a bit stunning how many people, how many police departments, and it's not just police departments, it's also uh, places like um, uni- university security. Uh, like, you know, all these like major universities have been sending their security uh, departments to Israel, which is really scary because, you know, campuses is where a lot of activism takes place. Can you talk about Israeli agribusiness and destruction of Palestinian heritage, agricultural heritage? Actually, this is very relevant to the first bit that I talked about regarding the destruction of uh, uh, Palestine's water system. Israel, in its early propaganda campaigns, was sort of trying to create the, quote-unquote, the new Jew, who was going to be an agrarian person, sort of farming the land and so forth. And it was very much built into the Zionist ideology of sort of tilling the land and, and, uh, and so forth. They siphoned an extraordinary amount of water to sort of have this appearance of agricultural success, even though agriculture was a very tiny portion of their GDP. So, so there was, you know, so there's the environmental destruction aspect of it. The other part is that um, 
Israeli, the Israeli agricultural sector employs its laborers from Palestinians who have Palestinian farmers who, whose land has been confiscated. And so they're forced to become day laborers, uh, very low wage day laborers. And they also employ children. There were reports last year of, uh, of child labor and a, and, all, and a lot of illnesses happening to children from, from the pesticides that, that are used. And then there's the issue, um, the other end of that is the toxic waste from Israel, not just from uh, the agricultural sector, but from, from all sectors, uh, industrial sectors and domestic usage. Um, waste gets dumped into Palestinian towns. Um, they, because um, Israel's environmental standards don't apply to um, the 67 territories, they, um, all these industries take their toxic waste and dump it in Palestinian towns. And they give, you know, desperate people who are living in poverty a few shekels um, and end up completely decimating, um, you know, the area and, and causing a lot of illnesses among local inhabitants. Um, they also, uh, Dump settlements dump their untreated sewage into Palestinian towns, and this is a huge problem. It it's destroying the water table too. Israel is trying in so many ways to uproot Palestinians and sort of making their towns into garbage dumps is just one of a multitude of ways. Um, and the agricultural business is part and parcel of that. Does APEC place interns in congressional offices, and is there a way to get? Arab American interns into the offices? I don't have specific data on that, but common sense would tell me that, yeah, I think they probably do. And there are, I'm sure there are Arab American interns. Um, I mean, there has to be. There's interns from all walks of life and, and all districts. Okay. Can you tell us how you started your playgrounds for Palestine and what made you do it? Um, thank you for asking that, whoever asked that question. So about uh, 19 years ago, my daughter was um, a toddler, and playgrounds were a huge part of our lives. And uh, I went back to Palestine after about an 18-year absence, and the lack of playgrounds was hugely visible to me because, you know, it was such a big part of our lives, as I said. And when I came back, I decided that we <laughs> needed to build playgrounds. As I often do with a lot of things in my life, I don't really think. I just, <laughs> I don't try to, I'm not a planner, and I just sort of jump into things headlong. And usually it, it results in disaster, but um, this time it was, uh, it turned out to be a wonderful project. We got our first playground donated. And with the help of Venera, we got the playground into Palestine and we built it. And then a lot of my amazing, wonderful friends joined the board. And we are an all-volunteer group of mostly women, with the exception of one man. And this is a labor of love for us. We raise money throughout the year. And whatever we have, we uh, use it to build playgrounds. We also support summer camps and uh, educational programs, skate camps, and other sort of recreational activities. And also, if you guys 
haven't seen the olive oil, <laughs> I need to plug this or, or our board's going to kill me. But we're selling olive oil. We finally have our own private label olive oil. It's called Ida, which is the feminine form of return, by the way. And uh, the olive oil is delicious. It's organic, fair trade, and all the proceeds go to Playgrounds Project. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to author and activist Susan Abuhawa speaking at the Israel Lobby and American Policy Conference held March 22, 2019 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, the conference of top thinkers, activists, authors, and experts who are denied corporate media platforms and access in the United States, was held just two days before the controversial lobbying group APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, held its annual policy conference at the Washington Convention Center. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of assistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can support On the Ground by helping us celebrate our fifth anniversary, May 19th, 5 p.m. at the new Busboys and Poets Anacostia with Professor Gerald Horn, Chantel James, DJ Wahid Aaron on the Wheels of Steel. More information and tickets are at onthegroundshow.org, on Facebook, and on Eventbrite. Our music during the break was Throughout by Charlie Hayden from the 2005 album Not In Our Name. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>